Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you very much for sending years in Boston and at uh, Harvard, so every time I return everything looks somewhat new, but also very familiar. Um, this lecture tonight is, you know, a portion of a book that I hope to eventually write on the subject, Narratives of Forgiveness uh, in the Bible, especially the relationship of justice and mercy and the way in which uh, forgiveness will then be articulated. Um, the only caveat I think I would want to mention is that in order to get a full kind of conspectus of the biblical view, uh, which is definitely necessary to master what the Bible wants to say ultimately about justice and mercy, uh, you have to look at all these facets or sides of the gem and keep them uh, kind of uh, stereoscopically in view. We're just going to look at one piece of the puzzle here tonight, so we definitely won't uh, solve all the problems. Uh, and then the other thing I guess I'd want to say, you know, teaching uh, first-year students the required theology course at Notre Dame, I'm used to uh, grave suspicions uh, about the character of the biblical God, especially the so-called God of the Old Testament. I think it's a deep, you know, kind of cultural prejudice and um, uh, strong reaction against the notion of a God judging evildoers. Um, it's always a challenge to somehow persuade the students that um, actually judgment can be uh, a very beneficial category. And uh, one of my favorite examples, it's not exactly relevant to this lecture, but it's such a great example, I'm going to tell the story anyway, uh, came from, and it's not irrelevant to the lecture either, so I'm not directly on point, but not off point, was a wonderful little piece in the Friday Wall Street Journal, probably a decade or so ago. Some of you may know on Friday they have a column on religion. And uh, this one uh, just took my breath away. I remember after reading it, I just had to stand up and walk around for a while. I just could not return uh, to my either normal newspaper reading or work. It was about a concentration camp in Germany in the 40s. And Heretzin was the name of it. I had never heard of this camp. Uh, and at this camp, the Jewish uh, residents there formed a choir, and they performed Verdi's Requiem, which has an extraordinary setting of the Dies Irae, which, you know, if you want to curdle your blood with the notion of um, 
divine judgment. Sometimes when people come and they say, you know, well, the Old Testament God's so bad, I like the New Testament God. You pull out the DSA, right? Well, let's, let's see about the New Testament God. Well, this, this is like the Old Testament God on steroids. Now, I don't advocate that as a pedagogical technique, certainly with first-year students, because then they won't like the New Testament either. Uh, so you have, to, you have to be careful as a pedagogue what you know, stories you bring to bear uh, on students, depending on how who your student is. That's an important element of teaching. You have to do some uh, sifting as to what your audience can uh, uh, adapt to and understand. But anyway, so you listen to Verdi's um, Dies Irae. Recall, for example, that Foray's Requiem doesn't have a Dies Irae. It reflects this 20th century, 21st century notion uh, that this is an aspect of the theological tradition that's unredeemable. But that's why this article is so incredible. So uh, the, in, the, in the article, they were interviewing a number of the survivors who were in their 90s, talking about how transformative it was to sing the Dies Irae in front of the Gestapo and all of their German uh, commandants to use a canonical text that you know just said in the loudest way possible that you know evildoers of this order are going to meet their comeuppance. It was incredible. It was incredible. I, I so I read that. I just like. Holy moly, I tried to put myself in the position of, you know, being there. How can you imagine that in the course of the Gestapo, they couldn't do anything. This was a sacred piece, you know, uh, what have you. It wasn't necessarily applied to them, but of course that was the intention of the singers, uh, is that um, uh, justice will come due. Uh, evil deeds of this sort simply can't be uh, swept under the rug. Anyways, I, I use that as a very effective pedagogical tool in class. Students instantly see, I was going to say, you're probably like me, you're raised, you know, white, middle class, you know, you don't really think about how necessary the forces of justice are in a society to make it civil. They're just part of the background noise. And so we don't think about what the world would look like if that background noise that we just presumed disappeared and real, you know, horrible evil was something that we faced on a daily, uh, on a daily basis, then I think a lot of the texts about judgment, as it were, in the Bible uh, would not look nearly as problematic uh, as um, we normally imagine. In any event, that's going to be part of what we're going to do tonight because I'm, I'm going to do something very improbable here. Thank you. Is this safe? Is this potable? Yeah, thank you. I was just walking back from campus the other day and I noticed they're doing construction. There's a truck with a big, you know, uh, must have been a vat of water that said not potable water. So I'm averse to non potable water. Okay. So I'm going to. Um, Tonight, the reason I mention that is make uh, an argument for um, the prophet Jonah's interest in seeing justice meted out to the Ninevites. This is a kind of impossible technique, uh, task. And in the end, I don't, won't really do that. It might be better to say my aim tonight is to enable us to see that reading the book of Jonah requires, eventually, I think we do need to side with God. I think from a theological perspective, that's uh, a good place to begin. But um, siding with God requires 
first, I think, at least for a deeper reading, uh, doing justice to what uh, Jonah's reservations are within the context of that book. So that'll be my task for tonight. That said, let's begin. We're all familiar with the story of Jonah. In the opening chapter of the book, the prophet receives his commission to go to Nineveh to pronounce judgment against the city because of the wickedness that has taken root there. Yet Jonah does not comply with this demand. Instead, he flees in the opposite direction to the city of Tarshish. He quickly finds out, however, that disobedience to the Lord's command is not an option for him. After being thrown into the turbulent sea, he's promptly swallowed by a fish sent from God. After three days in the belly of this creature, he prays to God, is released onto dry land, and makes his way to Nineveh. No sooner does he arrive there and pronounce the impending judgment than the people of the city mend their ways and plead to God for mercy. Their display of contrition is accepted, and Nineveh, at least for the time being, is delivered from the impending judgment. At this point, the reader would have expected to learn of Jonah's satisfaction with his successful mission. Yet just the opposite occurs. Jonah is angry at what has transpired and reveals then, finally in the last chapter of the book, the cause of that anger and by implication the reason for his disobedience. God, it would seem, in Jonah's mind, has been too merciful. And here's the first text on our handout, number one. That is why Jonah says, I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew, here's the key phrase, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. For most readers and homilists, the prophet Jonah appears to be overly moralistic, a man whose heart is so constricted that he thinks a display of mercy reveals weakness rather than strength. And no doubt, there's more than a little truth to this supposition. I'm not going to deny that for a second. Uh, but if we leave the matter there, as so many readers do, I think we'll miss some of the deeper truths the book wishes to explore. So what I'd like to suggest this evening is that Jonah's worries about a God who is too merciful are not necessarily completely misplaced. Perhaps an illustration here will make this clearer. I once knew a man who matriculated at Notre Dame in the early 60s, an era when strict curfews were in place. All lights were to be out at 11 in the evening. And this man was not happy with this rule. Being a skilled laborer, he altered the wiring in the hallway leading to his room, making it possible for him to read beyond the limits of the curfew. Unfortunately for him, one night he left a slight opening in his curtains, and the dorm rector, while on an evening stroll, stroll discovered his violation of school policy. The punishment was eviction from college. In despair over his future, he walked straight to Father Hesburgh's office, president of the university, and made a heartfelt appeal for mercy. His plea was quickly granted, and his gratitude to Father Hesburgh was immense. 
When I heard this story for the first time, of course, like anyone who would hear such a story, I was struck with admiration for the religious virtue Father Hesburgh had modeled for this young man. But I also wondered what dorm life would have looked like at Notre Dame if every misbehaving student could petition the president and be let off the hook. Would anyone want to be a dorm rector at a university where all the rules could be violated with impunity? Mercy, then, this is an important point, becomes meaningless if it isn't measured against an expected imposition of justice. A world in which justice is never rendered would quickly descend into chaos. Jonah's worries, I'd like to suggest, must have followed a similar logic. To plumb more deeply what the Bible wishes to teach, we must begin by taking initially Jonah's worries with an element of seriousness. Again, we're going to reject Jonah's position like the Bible does, like God does. Uh, I'm not going to speak as a heretic here. Uh, but um, I think to understand that rejection, uh, we can't turn Jonah into a cartoonish figure. Uh, we have to take his own worries with the seriousness, I think, that the biblical authors themselves did. The first clue that Jonah's position has an element of seriousness to it comes from a surprising textual variant in the book of Tobit. In the last chapter of that book, Tobit called his son Tobias, along with Tobias's seven sons, to his bedside to give one more instruction in Torah before he passed from this world. Before doing this, however, Tobit warned his son of the coming events. According to the shorter Greek manuscript, I've got this here, text number two on your handout, what we read uh, of Tobit's words, he says, my son, take your children and hurry off to media for I believe what Jonah said about Nineveh, that it will be overthrown. No doubt most readers are surprised at Tobit's scriptural logic. How can he lay claim, how can he claim fidelity to a prediction of punishment? Well, Jonah said 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, that a book, the book itself says was untrue. When God saw that they turned from their evil ways, he changed his mind, etc. The longer Greek manuscript, there also in text number two, which is the version normally adopted in modern translations, seems far more sensible. Here Tobit says, my son, take your children and hurry off to media, for I believe the word of God about Nineveh, which he spoke to Nahum. And I have text from Nahum there. Number five on your handout, a prophet who speaks against the Assyrian Empire. Uh, and his words are very much those of judgment. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, keeps wrath for his enemies. He's slow to anger and great of might, but he will by no means clear the guilty. That would seem the better text for most readers most commentators uh, for Tobit to cite, if he's going to cite a text. In his recent commentary on the book of Tobit, Joseph Fitzmaier, great Jesuit biblical scholar of a previous generation, lays out the reasons for preferring this latter version. And here's text three on your handout. 
In the Old Testament, the prophet Nahum of Elkosh is the author of a triumphal ode composed against the Assyrians and their capital Nineveh. It is certainly the more fitting allusion for Tobit to cite, as he does in the longer Greek manuscript, than the oracle of Jonah, which is found in the shorter version. Nahum foretold the coming destruction of Nineveh, whereas the preaching of Jonah, uh, whereas at the preaching of Jonah, the kings, nobles, and peoples of Nineveh repented and so escaped judgment. Tobit recalls Nahum's words against Nineveh and so recommends that Tobiah, his son, leave it as soon as he can to go to media. The argument for preferring, we're engaged in text criticism here, that's what text critics do. We got two Greek manuscripts giving us two very different readings, but we have to translate this for the NRSV, the NAB, whatever the uh, publication is going to be. You're going to have to choose which one to render and uh, most translators uh, stand with Fitzmaier and prefer uh, the version that invokes Nahum. One quibble uh, with this choice might be that the prophet Nahum might not have been active during Tobit's lifetime. But even if Tobit's life somehow overlapped with that of Nahum, it's still not clear how Tobit could have learned of Nahum's message given the great distance between them. Also, it's not clear why he would have known this and his son uh, would not have. However, if Tobit had learned of the threatened destruction of Nineveh from Jonah, these mysteries disappear. Jonah, after all, was active in Nineveh. And according to the literary frame of the book, not historically when it was written, but the frame in which the book is set, um, uh, Jonah was uh, active during the mid-8th mid century, and Tobit could easily have heard the words of his famous prophet prior to his son's coming of age. The problem, of course, with this hypothesis I've already mentioned is that the Ninevites repented and compelled God to rescind his decree of destruction. However, this challenge might not be as deep as often imagined. We have to remember that the book of Jonah doesn't sit as an isolated unit on its own, but it's part of the scroll of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, though one can read these books independently, they were collected in antiquity on a single scroll, and there is evidence that the final editors of these books took care to integrate them into uh, the larger collection in which they appear. In this vein, uh, Uriel Simon, a great commentator, on the Bible, but particularly the book of Jonah, observes that the two prophets that follow Jonah, we have Jonah, then Micah, then Nahum, both Micah and Nahum predicted the fall of the Assyrian kingdom and its capital. So take a look at what Uriel Simon then concludes. This is text number four. Now we're getting closer to the point I want to make this evening. He writes, the placement of these two books after Jonah expresses the view that Assyria returned to its evil ways shortly after its repentance, or after its better short-lived repentance. Given the gravity of the Assyrian threat throughout much of the biblical record, the notion that it would eventually succumb to divine judgment was a well-known fact, the biblical 
readers and writers. Any well-informed reader of the book of the 12 minor prophets would realize that the repentance of the Ninevites must have been short-lived because just a generation or so afterwards, the city was condemned to utter ruin. The only possible conclusion one could make in light of these facts is that Jonah was not as misguided as he might appear. His worries about the character of Nineveh's repentance and transformation were not out of order. Nineveh would have to be punished, but not on the timetable that Jonah expected. We can go a bit deeper into this angle of our story by returning to the words Jonah speaks when he announces his anger at God's display of mercy. He grounds his flight to Tarshish in the fact that God was, text number one, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This statement about the attributes of God goes back to a famous scene, one of the most famous scenes in the entire Christian Bible uh, in the book of Exodus, when God steps forward at the urging of Moses to clarify his own nature. As God steps, passes before Moses, the text reads, and here we have text number six on your handout, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, and then A will give us God's merciful attributes. The merciful attributes uh, have to be balanced by his justice attributes. So God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, implied generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. A couple things to notice here. First of all, this extraordinary incommensurability between mercy and justice. Mercy goes to a thousand generations, whereas uh, justice burns itself out after three or four. So yes, God is both merciful and just, uh, but obviously the upper hand is uh, that of his merciful nature. Uh, but the other thing worth noting here, if we go back to Jonah, text number one in our handout, is that Jonah has made a very interesting uh, selection here uh, from this revelation of the divine attributes. He's clearly citing Exodus 34, uh, but he's only citing those attributes of God uh, that come in the A portion I have there in the handout, just the uh, uh, elements of divine mercy. Okay, viewed this way, that is, notion that God is merciful, but not to such a degree that his justice is completely evacuated. The question then becomes, how can human agents parse the mystery of the Godhead? Answer, very important, they can't. Very important point to bear in mind. They can't. Um, simply, they cannot and must not. Whether God will show justice or mercy on any given occasion cannot be forecasted. Were that the case, fallen creatures could presume on the power of divine mercy and sin with impunity. Recall the challenge of being a dorm rector at a university where none of the rules for student conduct are enforced or where students could 
figure out what Father Hesburgh would forgive and what he wouldn't. Uh, you game the system. That's uh, uh, a policy that, uh, again, would end in disaster. Uh, the ancient rabbis were very conscious of this problem. In the following parable, they nicely describe how both justice and mercy must be part of God's providential order. This is going to be on your handout text number seven, but we need to know something very important before we read that. The key to understanding this passage is realizing in rabbinic thought that the personal name of God, rendered in capital letters YHWH, sometimes pronounced Yahweh, uh, the personal name for God for rabbinic readers was thought to represent God's merciful character, and then the generic word for God in the Hebrew Bible, Elohim, was thought to represent his justice side. Uh, so they're going to put to work this presumption that they make in order to interpret a very peculiar collocation in the first several chapters of Genesis. Normally, a biblical writer will use either Lord or God, but in the creation narrative, strikingly, our writer uses the combination the Lord God, tetragrammaton plus Elohim. Uh, scholars from antiquity to the present day have always asked why or what explains this curious combination in addressing or identifying uh, the divine subject. Uh, and we're going to see the answer here provided by rabbinic readers in the text you have there. Uh, they first cite the lemma, the verse from Genesis, the Lord God made heaven and earth. And then uh, they ask uh, the question, why is the subject of the sentence both Lord and God? And then, like Jesus, they turn to a parable to answer the question they posed. This may be compared to a king who had some fine glassware. Said the king, if I pour hot water into them, they will burst. If cold, they'll contract and snap. What did the king do? He mixed hot and cold water and poured it into them so that they remained unbroken. Even so, said the Lord, the Holy One, blessed be he. If I create the world on the basis of mercy alone, its sins will be great. And on the basis of judgment alone, well, then the world could never exist. Hence, I'll create it on the basis of just judgment and mercy, and may it then stand. Hence, the reason why the biblical writer uses this peculiar collocation in these, of all chapters in Genesis, the Lord God. This passage, I think, nicely accounts for the problem that would have faced Father Hesper. Running the university is analogous in its own way to running the universe. If Father Hesper was to mete out strict justice to each and every student under his care, the school would soon be empty of paying customers. On the other hand, if he shows mercy to each and every violator of the law, he'll soon be in the position of having no one who would want to work in the dormitories. It's crucial then, for running the university, that mercy and justice be combined. But it's also crucial that this formula for how this mixture is going to work remains a mystery. To be sure, mercy has the upper hand, clear from Exodus 34, but the precise admixture cannot be such that those underneath God or Father Hesburgh can gain the system. The freedom of God 
must be preserved. The wise sage Ben Sirah, Sirah Ecclesiasticus, the name goes by a number of different titles, was alert to the dangers of creating a system that human agents could know and control. He counseled a degree, I like this term, of epistemic humility, from episteme to know, a humility about what you can know. Ben Sirah counseled a degree of epistemic humility. Reminds me here, so I hope this is the Harvard audience. I hope you're not embarrassed that I'm glossing. You know this phrase in English. I, I had a professor who was, uh, I won't mention his name, quite presumptuous, gave a lecture at Harvard in the 60s and uh, included a long quote in Latin. And when he was done, he said, well, knowing that this is Harvard, I won't have to translate. And then continue. Anyways. Um, so back to the subject. He counseled a degree of epistemic humility regarding the way in which God displayed his justice and mercy. The text in question begins with three admonitions regarding improper trust in God's mercy. Do not say God is merciful. He'll blot out all my sins. Uh, evidently, I, Freud tells this story, I don't know if it's true, about the German poet Henrik Heinrich Heine, uh, that was evidently some, like, somewhat of an immoral, scurrilous man. And when asked on his deathbed if he was going to be afraid to meet, meet his maker, he said, uh, uh, God will forgive me, that's his job. Um, I think most people blanch at that. You can imagine, if you wish, Hitler in his bunker in Berlin saying the same thing. You would not want to believe in a God uh, whose mercy could be employed uh, to uh, that degree. So do not say God is merciful. He'll blot out all my sins. doesn't matter what I do. Don't put so much trust in God's forgiveness that you add sin to sin. Don't say his mercies are innumerable. He'll forgive my many sins. Uh, but then he continues. For he is both merciful and wrathful, and his rage will fall upon the wicked. Do not delay in turning to him, nor put it off from one day to the next. And then this next clause is particularly important. For his anger can go forth at any time. Hebrew peaked om, suddenly, you know, unpredictably, uh, it will go off. And in the day of vengeance, you'll be swept away. What we definitely have here underscored is this epistemic humility, right? Uh, God is merciful. He's also God is just. But you can't figure out the logarithm, so the best policy is to uh, confess now, not wait. Certainly don't presume and add sin upon sin. This would be a disaster. Benzira then is worried that individuals here in this text are going to try to game the system. That's the problem with the incommensurability of mercy and justice. People will presume on mercy and uh, take no cognizance of what they're doing. Like the rabbis, Ben Sira teaches that both mercy and wrath are part of the Godhead, yet Ben Sira explicitly thematizes an element that's only implied in our rabbinic parable. It's not only the case that God is both merciful and just, but the relationship between the two cannot be forecasted and hence exploited. Because God's anger can erupt, as Ben Sira says, at any time, the only prudent action to take would be to repent quickly for whatever wrongs one might have committed. If we, we 
can presume for a moment the importance of the unknowability of the relationship between justice and mercy, then I think we can appreciate more deeply a couple of narrative details in the book of Jonah uh, that are too often glided over uh, by modern readers. If we return to the virtuous behavior of the sailors at the beginning of the book and the king of Nineveh in its middle, we'll notice that both of these uh, individuals or groups of individuals uh, have a decided element of humility on display when they seek the mercy of God. The problem for the sailors begins when God hurls a storm so great upon the sea that it threatens to destroy their sailing vessel. And so notice what then the sailors say. Uh, reading here on our text number nine, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Uh, skipping to the next verse, the mariners were afraid. Each cried to his God. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. The king came and said to him, what are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. And then, again, not to leave any room for ambiguity here, I use bold and underscore, like students that you know use their yellow highlighter to highlight everything on the page. Uh, perhaps overdone, but it's always good to emphasize when you're speaking. Perhaps, lie in Hebrew, the God will spare us. There's no presumption here, no presumption. A epistemic humility, perhaps God will spare us. Or take a look at the king of Nineveh in chapter 3. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, made a proclamation. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, cry mightily to God, etc., etc. And then when all that's done, what does verse 9 say? Different words, same idea, different clause, miodea in Hebrew. Who knows, right? No presumption here. Who knows? Uh, we'll put ourselves in a, the necessary position for God to forgive us, but it's not sufficient, right? We can't force God's hand. Uh, there's a sense of epistemic humility. God may relent and change his mind, but this contrasts dramatically with we might want to say the epistemic confidence displayed by our prophet Jonah. Uh, certainly this is uh, very much the problem uh, of his kind of theological grasp of the matter. This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew, the Yadati in Hebrew, I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger. He had God figured out presumably confirmed by everything uh, that happened. The declaration that Jonah makes is worth comparing to very similar words spoken by the prophet Joel, a text often used in Ash Wednesday services about repentance. Here, Joel urging his congregation to return, while speaking in the name of God, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, etc., return to the Lord, and then these attributes of God again, he's gracious and mercy, slow, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, repents of evil, but then who knows, right? The same phrase used by the king of Nineveh. No presumption here. Uh, no presumption. Who knows whether he will not turn 
uh, and repent. I have a student now working on his dissertation on the hymns of uh, Saint Ephraim, a great you know Syriac writer from the fourth century, on the uh, um, repentance of the Ninevites, and he develops at great length. Ephraim does the uh, notion of um, the people of Nineveh just standing, you know, in utter awe and expectation as to what the results of their repentance will, will be. He just gives makes great dramatic effect of this notion of not presuming on God, waiting to hear, uh, 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 hoping, of course, for mercy, but not knowing. The text from Joel here that we just looked at also shows us that selectively citing these attributes from Exodus 34, like Jonah does, only citing the merciful ones and not including the ones about judgment is not unusual. We'll find that frequently happening in the Hebrew Bible, that the words for, or the terms for mercy are the only ones uh, that are going to be voiced by our biblical prayer. Uh, that's because the author in almost all of these texts is trying to persuade God to turn from his wrath. But what makes Jonah's citation unique uh, and different than all of these other texts is the fact that the attribute of mercy is recalled to the disfavor of God. But this surprising feature, as we argued above, is grounded in a legitimate worry the prophet has that an overindulgent attitude towards lawbreakers will lead to a total collapse of the civic order. And as, as if, well, I guess the example here, we'll get the name here in a second, I think of, you know, parents who perhaps have um, overindulging, you know, answer uncles or grandparents. Now I'm grandparents, so I could perhaps be in this case. You send the kids away for a weekend. Uh, your kids are in every, every conceivable wish or desire is indulged. You get them back after three days as parents and you can't manage them, right? It was like a nightmare. Who would ever want that? Oh, my God. Uh, they've turned into brats in just, you know, three short days. Um, that, we might want to say, is, is Jonah's worry. God is this overindulgent uncle who's not taking seriously uh, the underlying evil here uh, that's um, uh, at work. And uh, the end result, Jonah believes, will not be to God's uh, satisfaction. In a sense, Jonah's worries then are confirmed uh, in the prophet Nahum. So if we take a look here at text number 13, we already looked at this once before, um, but this is the text as we saw, Uriel Simon said, follows the um, prophet Jonah in our current Hebrew manuscripts. It follows uh, the prophet Jonah with the insertion of Micah in between. Uh, and the Greek Septuagint, which follows, came from a Hebrew order in itself, the prophet Nahum comes immediately after the prophet Jonah. And here the juxtaposition is incredible. It works either way, but if you're reading it, the, the scroll of the 12 prophets, according to the order of the Septuagint, chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah says, I knew that you were a God, merciful, gracious, etc., etc., which is Exodus 34, unit A, and then, like six verses later, Nahum says, you know, God is, you know, Exodus 34b, right? That I am going to wreak vengeance on uh, you, the Ninevites. It's an incredible uh, turnaround. 
In other words, in one generation, Nineveh is um, forgiven. In the next generation, uh, they are going to be uh, wiped out. Okay. Get back to my manuscript here before uh, losing my way. Um, in this oracle, looking here at Nahum, text number 13, uh, we see a citation of both parts of Exodus 34, but with a decided emphasis here on justice over mercy. Again, the words taken from Exodus 34. The prophet here isn't making this up. He's citing what we have uh, from this revelation uh, to Moses. How do we square the portrait from Jonah? God shows mercy in spite of the prophet's desire for justice. With that of Nahum, God condemns the guilty to face his wrath. It would seem clear that we must take seriously both sides of the divine personality and not too quickly condemn Jonah for his concerns about the wayward path of the Ninevites and the Assyrian Empire over which they rule. Let us recall Simone's sage observation from this text number four in your handout uh, that the placement of Nahum after Jonah expresses, quote, the view that Assyria returned to its evil ways after its short-lived repentance. Jonah's error then, and the reading here I'm proposing should not be reduced to the act of preferring justice over mercy. Well, that remains a problem. Uh, there is a legitimacy, though, to his worries, I wanted to suggest. Where he errs is in his belief that he knows better than God what the precise calculation of the relationship between justice and mercy. So we do side with God in the end, but I think we miss something in the profundity of the book if we don't, before we side with God, see what Jonah's legitimate worries uh, are, are about. To be sure there's an incommensurability between justice and mercy, God's far more inclined toward mercy to a thousand generations than to justice, and there's three or four, but the element of divine freedom should not be forgotten or downplayed. Though we're obliged to pray for mercy, we must acknowledge that on occasion, justice must be done. Up to now, we've made our case for this particular reading based on the placement of Jonah within the book of the 12 minor prophets. Indeed, in the ordering of those books, I mentioned in the Greek Bible, it works even better. Uh, but we can come at this from a different angle as well, from a more or purely historical point of reference. As modern scholarship has clearly shown, the book of Jonah was written near the end of the biblical period. Its language is full of words and syntactical constructions that betray its late origin. If we combine this knowledge with the fact that the biblical tradition was well aware of the role of the Assyrian Empire in the destruction of the northern kingdom, it's hard to imagine that the author of this short prophetic novella was unaware of what the ultimate fate of the Ninevites would be. And here I won't cite it, but you can take a look at a long oracle against Assyria in the prophet Isaiah chapter 10. According to Isaiah, this nation was once in the good graces of Israel's God, being the agent of his just punishment of the north, but that same nation took its mandate too far and turned against the deity whom it had for a time dutifully served. 
In the course of time, the collapse of the northern kingdom came to be, became to be seen as a type or figure for the fall of the south. In the eighth, like his 8th century counterparts, the king of Babylon began with a divine mandate to punish Judah, but his wrath exceeded the scope of that call. And in the end, God had to intervene to destroy the city of Babylon, just as he destroyed the city of Nineveh. Given the deep impression these events had on the biblical tradition, it's nearly impossible, I think, to imagine that the author of the book of Jonah and his readers would have ignored that history as they read this scroll. They would have known as well as the author of the book of Tobit that Nineveh's repentance was short-lived and that the nation would be shortly destroyed. So looking at it historically, we come to the same destination, but by a slightly different path. Jonah's worries about the depth of Nineveh's transformation would have seemed well-founded. At the beginning of this essay, I noted that homilists usually portray Jonah as a rigorous moralist who stands athwart the merciful intentions of the God of Israel. I also said, and should underscore, there's a lot of truth to this supposition. I continue to stand by that observation. God, in his providential wisdom, determined that the inhabitants of Nineveh had turned from their evil ways, and so he rescinded his punitive decree. Yet as attentive readers, we also know that this moral turnaround was short-lived. The point of the book cannot be that of mercy trumping justice full stop. To be sure, the depth of mercy exceeds that of justice. But mercy cannot completely erase the legitimate demands of justice. Jonah's error should not be confined to his rigid moralism. He also erred in his arrogant supposition that he knew better than God how to calibrate the delicate tension between the remission of sin and its punishment. In this way, the book of Jonah anticipates the wisdom of Ben Sirah. Though God is both merciful and wrathful, the relationship between the two cannot be forecasted. The sinner would be wise to turn to God in haste, or as Ben Sirah says, his anger can go forth at any moment and he may be swept away on a day of vengeance. Thank you for your time. Time for questions. If people have questions to ask. Yes. Thank you very much, uh, Professor, for such a, a learned and very interesting uh, uh, lecture. Um, I wondered, uh, you quoted the, um, the rabbis, um, I wondered to what extent you think it yeah. was equated to the and the students, but I also wonder to what extent you see continuity within patristic thoughts, to figures like the of, you know, Carthage, uh, when he speaks of, sort of the, maybe sort of, he's often also accused of being rigorous, that wants to chuck out the systematics, uh, but also um, the recent scholarships shows that he also was uh, interested in reconciling uh, those outside the of the church. Um, to what extent do you think the, um, the fathers knew of sort of the older, if you like, second temple uh, traditions that went into the composition of the last century? Well, that's a great question. I don't. I have not followed uh, this particular theme uh, in all of the fathers, so I would um, 
certainly one that I know well, St. Ephraim, he certainly is aware of uh, these two sides, we might want to say, of the Godhead, and it plays a a big role in his his memory, uh, his his sermons. yeah, I can't do justice to that. I guess one of the lines, I mean, this would be, you know, if I was to give, you know, a second lecture after this, it would be about the uh, repentance of David in 2 Samuel and the way in which justice and mercy combine there, that the, the judgment that God um, commands with respect to David's murder of Uriah and adultery with Bathsheba follows the forgiveness of his sin, which eliminates, of course, capital punishment, but it doesn't eliminate David having to suffer the indignities that Nathan says attend this grave moral error. And what's striking in the book is that Samuel, as it unfolds, is that David himself utilizes the punishments that come his way as a mode of spiritual repair. So that's very, that's the other element I think that has to be added here, which I couldn't do justice in this talk, is that for God, this isn't kind of a karmic, you know, settling of scores, as it were, uh, but ultimately punishments in the Bible, when they come due, uh, are calibrated. They don't always work this way, of course, it depends on the person receiving the punishments, but this is why David is exemplary. The punishments become uh, the means of restoration uh, and return. Uh, and this is very analogous. I'm sure we can find the fathers on this, but I just haven't looked. But you can certainly find it in the catechism, uh, where if you take a look at the rite of reconciliation, so that the words of absolution don't mean with respect to horrible things that you are complicit in, that all of the consequences now disappear. No. You you leave the confessional, whatever you did to hurt somebody else, that still is a fact on the ground. And part of your penitential sequence is to factor in the just desserts coming your way, not with anger, but with the utilization of them as a, a way to restore your relationship with God. So that, again, justice and mercy... They're not, they're not opposing elements, that the justice is ordered to uh, uh, the restoration of the individual question. It's really what St. Thomas, I think, is driving at when he distinguishes punishment from satisfaction. And in fact, he refers uh, in the Summa, when he's uh, distinguishing these two characteristics, uh, he cites the story of King David as an example. Uh, punishment is the, you know, the strict and karmic principle of, you know, you'll suffer for what you did. But satisfaction is the individual uh, utilizing his own will to uh, and accept the punishments as the fit, you know, um, consequence for what you did wrong and uh, the fit consequence as the occasion for your contrition and return. Um, I think that's another important, I'm sure that's in the Fathers, but uh, not, I have not plumbed it. Yes. Well, in the in the absence of God publicly and observably um, taking credit for each instance of mercy and justice, um, how is the let's call it the Ben Sira principle um, distinguishable in practice from no God at all? I'm sorry. 
How is this distinguishable from no blood at all? This Oh, that's a great question. That's fantastic. That's exactly what the quote-unquote evildoers in the Psalms say. They say, wish I had a book of Psalms, they say, look, we do evil and nothing happens, right? Uh, Psalm 9 is a locus classicus for this, Psalm 9 and 10. That's one of the, pro the problems the lamenter faces. He says, look, God, you know, these people are, you know, affecting these, these travesties and nothing happens. But for Ben Sira and for Paul, for the variety thinkers, God, you know, doesn't immediately intervene and punish because he's allowing the occasion for the individual to think better of themselves and to appeal for forgiveness. But it creates exactly the problem you're suggesting, and the Bible's very aware of that, that individuals can look at this kind of, you know, um, not, not immediate engagement between evil deed and uh, its comeuppance as the occasion for disbelieving in God. That's clearly when the when, like Psalm 14, the, the you know the wicked say there is no God. Uh, there, I mean, most biblical commentators would say, and I would agree with them that these aren't you know kind of Nietzsche, you know Nietzsche's avant la let, you know before their time. They're individuals who say I can act with impunity and nothing will happen. I don't know, is that, get, that, is that your question? Well, God also doesn't, unlike the, um, you know, this, this person at Notre Dame who is dispensing justice and yeah. mercy, God doesn't actually come down and take each, take credit for each instance of justice and mercy. It's, it's indistinguishable, isn't it, from just like there being no God at all. I mean, even, even not just the evildoers, but even everyone else who's not doing evil can look at this and say, well, I don't see any real... Well, of course, I mean, yes, ultimately that will always be the case. I mean, there's not like some kind of, you know, uh, empirical proof that there is a God, but I think the person who is the believer believes that ultimately evildoers, yes, given, you know, sufficient time, do get their comeuppance, and we point to all kinds of occasions where this happens, and that those who are merciful are rewarded. Uh, not always immediately in this life, but ultimately, you know, in the world to come. That's, you know, I think a basic you know, Christian conviction, but it is a conviction of faith. It's not something that can be established empirically, if that's what you mean. Yes? Does our understanding of God's mercy and justice change at all with Jesus coming in the New Testament, where he has a big emphasis on, it's not following the letter of the law like the, the Jewish people might, as much as it is, it is about a transformation of... So, I, you know... I like to say no, because it's the same God, both in old and new, and we could look at, you know, I can't remember where this is in the Gospels, but Jesus is in Galilee, and I think he's addressing the people of Chorazin. He says, you heard what happened in the Old Testament to Sodom and Gomorrah? It's going to be a thousand times worse now, right? Uh, so I believe that the mercy justice element in the New Testament, you know, continues uh, I think there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a continuity in God's character uh, between the two testaments. Now, the one text that you gave, you, you, you allude to, was the Sermon on the Mount, um, and Jesus's uh, quote, you know, quote unquote, deepening of the law. Um, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that the Old Testament already has a sense of that deepening of the law. Um, when I teach the introduction of the Old Testament, when we look at the Book of Ruth typically read in the synagogue, the Feast of Pentecost, which is associated with the uh, giving of the law, 
in Jewish tradition, but all the characters in the book of Ruth are consummate law observers. It's basic. You can't read the book without realizing that. But if you take a look, for example, in chapter 2, when um, uh, Ruth goes forth to glean in the field, and Boaz has left a portion of his field open for gleaning, he's fulfilling a commandment found in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy, uh, maybe it's 24, I can't remember where in Deuteronomy. But the law just says, you know, leave the corner of your field unharvested for the poor to glean. It doesn't say, if it's a poor woman out there who might be abused by your male harvesters, you should go out there and protect her, give her water, do this. do. But Boaz, that's what he does, right? So he sees the law, but he realizes that the law is a placeholder for a much bigger thing. And I'm not going to go through my whole lecture on Ruth, but every law in that book follows that principle. In other words, we have the law, but we have you know, the kind of deeper exposition. And I think what we can see there in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is, you know, as it were, uh, he's obviously doing new things, but the hermeneutical move, I think, is a deeply biblical thing uh, and fits with what he says just a few chapters, uh, just maybe all in chapter five, that he's not going to eliminate, eliminate you know, one iota, jot or tittle from the law. Um, and uh, I think that the quote-unquote deepening of the law is something that we can find illustrated in the Old Testament as well. I was going to ask you a question about um, certainty and faith. Yeah. And the kind of tension between presumption, or the sin of presumption, and the certainty of faith that we're encouraged to have. And I'm wondering if you can just speak to, I mean, this tension that appears in um, what you've given us tonight to reflect on, but also... Just helpful distinctions about is this is this an interior judgment versus thinking about other people? Um, how should how should we kind of make sense of the tension here between a sort of certainty that faith is supposed to give us about the the mercy of God, um, and also an awareness, a constant awareness of our own shortcomings, and how to reconcile those two things in a lived experience? Yeah, that's a tough. I mean. These, these problems have so many different facets. Um, one of the things, I'm going to go in a slightly different direction here, but I love on this question, if we think of the problem of universal salvation, my favorite book is Hans Urs von Balthasar, Dare We Hope That All Men Might Be Saved. Um, and he's not a universalist, but his position, so how does he, how does he situate that book? It's a brilliant book in my, my view. The book is read or uh, written, in, in my opinion, as you know, kind of part of we might want to say an Ignatian spiritual exercise. In other words, what hap how, how is the person formed or shaped spiritually? Uh, von Balthasar wants to ask if he's certain that person X, Y, or Z are definitely going to hell. Uh, he says, "Well, the natural, you know, next thought is, well, I'm not as bad as them." So I must be okay, which from Balthazar is a very dangerous position uh, than to put oneself in religiously. Now he's not going. This is not. He's not casting his net into. You know, this is how the afterlife looks. But it's you know the kind of how does this look behind the eyeballs of the individual Christian trying to live his Christian life? But he says we can never know if all men might be saved. But with Timothy, he says we ought to pray that all men might be saved. I think that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful way of coming at the issue of, uh, of, uh, of uh, 
of universalism, and the same thing would hold, of course, for one's person. Yes, you pray, you have, you know, you know that there's this incommensurability, certainly between mercy and justice, but, um, you know, you can't, you can't ever have, you know, full assurance. Having said that too, you know, if I were, you know, a priest in the confessional, what you're going to tell someone, you know, well, you just might not be forgiven if they're, you know, uh, in a terrible, you know, spot. No, I would never advise anyone to do that as a pastoral element. But again, what I said at the beginning of the class is, you, I would never, you know, for my first year students, you know, line up all the testament te texts about, you know, divine justice and perdition in the New Testament and say, look, he's just as bad here as he is in the old. Like that would be that'd be a disaster. Though I could do it, I can do it. Very well, but I don't. I don't think that would be an effective ped pedagogical technique. And I, if I had someone in my office crying contritely over what they did wrong, I wouldn't say, "Well, you know, you just might not be forgiven for this," because I really can't tell how severe your contrition is right now. That just. I mean, you can affirm, so you have to, you, I mean, you have to take your bearing on the sitzileba, the setting of life. Who's saying it? What's the context? It's not like you just have this theological truth and boom, I apply it here, apply it here, I apply it here. That, that's a disaster. They have to be contoured uh, to the particular situation in which you find yourself, right? But I do think that there's a value ultimately in preserving this notion of epistemic humility, right? Not presuming, knowing he's merciful, but not presuming on it. Um, and uh, keeps us honest. I, I wonder what the relationship between love uh, as an act of the will mm -hmm. uh, and your point about um, Jonas' concern of safeguarding divine freedom uh, between the masculine justice pendulum. Oh. Uh, Right. Uh, so, are you referring to the text on the handout of God of the Jonah's citation of the attributes? I guess I'm still not sure I'm, I'm understanding. He says, "I know you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger." Is your point here? I'm not sure what. Well, perhaps more on, on the who knows, right? Yeah. Point point against presumption, right? Um, it seems that the text wants us to. Safeguard some element of divine freedom. Yes, of course. Um, and I wonder what relationship between that and the attribute of love of God would be. This is a so, you uh, mean God's freedom to love or not love? Or what, what do you mean? I'm not sure. Who, who so, God doesn't have a freedom not to love. God's freedom is love all the time. And ultimately, I guess what I wanted to say, I didn't say, but the reason I brought David in. It's not a part of today's lecture, but also going back to my preparatory remarks, do justice to this old problematic in the Bible, we would have to look at you know a number of stories to get the fullest possible picture. But the other part, I, you know, the reason why I mentioned David is that I think ultimately punishments in the Bible are ordered to restoration. They only become, as it were, kind of karmic you know, execution of justice when the individual refuses to utilize them that way. I think this is uh, also very much the difference. Well, it's the difference between Saul and David, certainly on their repentance. I think it's also different, the difference in um, uh, the uh, between uh, those in the inferno and those in the first story. 
uh, those in purgatory are, are, are utilizing the punishment <coughs> that they're all doing as the mode of return. Uh, those in the inferno are just simply you know, crying out unfair whatever as the punishments come. They're not cognizant that the punishments could be restored. But I think, I think that Dante is realizing the domestic distinction between punishment <coughs> and satisfaction. Um, so I don't know if not all um, readers of Dante would agree with me, but I agree with me on Last question. Um, just a clarification. Uh, you are aware that the um, concern about God's judgment in the Old Testament is not that he judges as such, but what he judges in the telling of, uh, like trying to convince other people to worship other gods, for example, or Onan, yes. for example, or um, and how he dispenses justice as well, killing Egyptian firstborns, and I mean, I suppose the expectation is that Jesus and the returns will not be, you know, firebombing cities upon arrival. So, um, I mean, I mean, that's that's kind of the concern, right? Like you, this it's not like about God judging, but like how He judges, like depicted as judging. In the that world. that that is definitely true. It's not a, that's not a theme I address tonight. To take, you know, or even David killing his child. Uh, David's child dying. Yes, that would you know. That, that's another, that, again, that's not a subject that I, I don't know if I certainly can't call to anyone on Twitter do justice to it. So I, 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 I certainly, you know, agree. That's a different question. Do justice. <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.